0: As goes the South, so goes the nation. I know it may feel like a million years ago, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, but once upon a time, we were in the middle of an election year. And just a little over two months ago, it seemed like Vice President Joe Biden's hopes for securing the Democratic nomination for the presidency seemed dead in the water. And now he's the presumptive nominee at an earlier point than any Democratic candidate in the last several cycles. So what happened? Well in part black southern voters showed up to support him in mass. It's the same pattern that actually shaped the 2016 Democratic nomination for Hillary Clinton. Democratic candidates may not win southern states in general elections, but southern states choose Democratic nominees in primaries. And that's a phenomenon that still confounds a lot of political talking heads, particularly those on the coast. But it didn't surprise Michael Harriet Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are diving into the history and modern reality of black voters in the South. My guest today, Michael Harriet, is an award-winning senior writer for The Root and one of the most influential voices in the South today. He's based in Birmingham, a place he has called the blackest city in America, but his impact is national. We discuss black voters in the Democratic Party, his thoughts on Birmingham and Alabama, how a column of his dealt a strong blow to Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign, and of course, Southern history. Now we recorded this conversation just after Super Tuesday, so a few things may have changed, like the country being on lockdown, for example. But listen up at the end of the show for a chance to have Michael answer your questions in real time later this week. And now let's dive into the Reckon interview. Michael Harriet, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. You are a senior writer at The Root, Mm -hmm. and uh, this is unscientific, but I think you may be the writer with the biggest Twitter following (laughs) in the state of Alabama. Maybe, I don't know. If people haven't read your pieces on The Root, they've definitely seen one of your threads. (laughs) They are uh, legendary. You grew up in Hartsville, South Carolina, is that right? Yep, a little small town, uh,
1: kind of near Myrtle Beach the Myrtle Beach area,
0: just in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina. And then you went to Auburn University right. for undergrad. Is right. that where you also did your master's?
1: No, I did my master's at
0: Florida State University. Okay, at Florida State. Yes. So then how did you wind up in Birmingham? How did so that
1: come I was working uh, as kind of a freelance for... The Washington Post used to be owned by... Well, used to own a, a bunch of publications, Newsweek, Newsweek International. So I was working privately for a company that did project management for places out of the uh, country. And when I was at Auburn, I, because this was back in the days before you could go online and register for classes. So if you just didn't wake up early enough to (laughs) register, like you, or couldn't get through on the phone lines, then you'd be left with, uh, so my, my second year at Auburn, it was time for me to take a foreign language and all the Spanish classes were taken, which is what I had taken in high school. So I decided, you know, this Chinese uh, course might be interesting. So I signed up for Chinese and I ended up taking the entire series of courses. And so I was kind of semi-fluent in Chinese and uh, went to grad school to get my master's. I originally wanted to go to film school and then switched to, well, I kind of created a major, which was kind of macroeconomics and international business. And so I was working for that company and I started freelancing with different companies owned by the Washington Post. And I ended up in China for the 08 Olympics. Oh, wow. And worked there for the 08 Olympics, you know, covering like the buildup of it. And when I decided to move back to the States, I didn't know where I wanted to live. And I was offered to write for about this and cover this new political candidate. Uh, That was was like, they didn't think that he was going to, you know, make any noise. But they say, I mean, there's this guy, no way he's going to win. But this guy named Barack Obama, if you want to cover his his candidacy, you know, feel free. So
0: out of all the places that I chose, I chose Birmingham to live. You write for The Root, you mm-hmm. speak on to a black audience nationally, but right. you speak from the perspective of, of an Alabamian, of a Southerner. Right. And at this moment that we're speaking, that has become an incredibly relevant topic of conversation. Yes. We're, we're speaking right now the day after Super Tuesday 2, Big Tuesday, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call right. it. Ever since then, the sort of national conversation, you flip on CNN, you flip on Fox, you flip on MSNBC, people have been trying to figure out Black Southern voters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what's your take on the conversation around it? And then what's your take on what people got wrong about this election? Well, the point that I've been making, and I make
1: about a lot of things, is there is no national conference call where, you know, all the Black people get together and decide on who they're going to vote for. <laughs> people vote for very as many uh, varied and wide reasons as white voters. And so I kind of point out a lot of the things that I hear and I talk to people about, and not necessarily me going to people and asking them about politics. Um, I think because of of because I'm a writer, you as you would know, it, people think that's what you want to talk about. So if you talk to someone, they're going to ask you about whatever beat you cover. If you cover Alabama football, even if they're not an Alabama fan, they're going to talk about college football. And so people talk to me a lot about politics. And one of the things that I noticed is like there is no real one conclusion on why people voted for Biden versus Bernie. But there are a number of reasons. And so I've been pointing those out. And, uh, you know, some people will take it as you advocating for one candidate or another when you hear or report things that you hear. But, you know, I think that to understand black voters again, you have to understand the influences of them being in the South. Like being in the South for black voters who typically vote Democrat, who typically vote, you know, kind of progressive and who live under a system and under a uh, in a red state in red states and who is who've existed kind of under white supremacy. All of that factors into everything that they do. And so some of those are the motivating factors and some of those are the things that I've been pointing out.
0: You had a thread the other day um, that really changed the way, I guess, I think a lot of, mm-hmm. about a lot of the, about this. You, you were talking about what the Democratic establishment mm-hmm. means to the South, what it means, um, you know, that the Democratic Party as it exists, uh, not necessarily the DNC, mm-hmm. but the local Democratic Party has a different relevance if you are, let's say, a black voter living in Lowndes right. County. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that?
1: Right. So if... So I grew up, again, in a small town, right? And I remember, and this is how the thread started, and I think there's a piece coming out either today or tomorrow in the Washington Post about it. But I grew up, I used to have to go to piano lessons every Wednesday at, like, 5 o'clock. And I remember my piano lesson, my piano teacher, she was also... The local music teacher, she taught at all of the black elementary schools. Now, the schools in my time were segregated, really. This is surprising, until 1995. Wow. Right. So I would go to her house, and her husband was also a history teacher, a middle school history teacher. And everyone would be at the house. I would have to kind of wade through their living room. And it would always be filled with people talking about one issue or another. And I'd have to wait for them to finish their conversation. So I would kind of eavesdrop and get kind of the lesson on what was going on in the city. And I learned that they were all Democrats. Now, I grew up, I was homeschooled. So I didn't, you know, have the, you know, even though my mother, you know, made us learn history and all of that. Like, I really didn't know at that time what Democrats was. All I knew is that you couldn't say anything bad about it in my house. You couldn't (laughs) say anything bad about the Democrats. And so I thought it was a religion. Yeah. And so I used to have this idea that this was this secret black religion that was like helping all the black people in town. (laughs) And so that's how I thought of the Democratic Party. Right. And I think that's how a lot of people think about the Democratic Party. As you said, if you grew up in Lowndes County, or any small town in America, the pool of people who are on the school board, black people, like there's always like one black person who gets to make it to the school board or on the city council. And that person is usually a teacher. That person is usually an officer in the NAACP. That person is often a pastor or a, a, a dean at the church, right? So it's all the same pool of people. So when you hear people talk about the Democratic Party, those are the the, the people that come to mind, right? Mm-hmm. It reminds you of those people, the people that you knew, because nobody knows Tom Perez, right. right? Nobody knows, you know, who the executive director of the DNC campaign fund is. They know those people who helped them keep that factory out of their neighborhood. They know the people who helped their child get a scholarship to college. Those are those so when Bernie Sanders for instance distances himself from the party for 30 years and then when he runs for president wants to wants that party to get behind him and endorse him most a lot of what I heard is well he ain't no democrat. Right. Right. And that doesn't mean that those people believe that Joe Biden is necessarily on their their side, but he played on that team, right? Like it's it's just like if you have a kicker who plays for your college football team, who's terrible. He misses, like, you might think that kicker is trash, but if someone says, Hey man, that 2020 Alabama football team is really great. And we're going to see if they're better than the, 1998 Ohio State football team. You're going to choose the Alabama football team, even Every though yeah. that high that that trash kicker was on your team. And Joe Biden might be to some people that trash kicker,
0: but he was on the team that, that they rooted for. Yeah. And Sanders, I mean, it wasn't just that he didn't play for the Democrats, to use right. your analogy, but I mean, Southern Democrats in particular, I, I will say he spent more time in South Carolina in 2020 than he mm, did in right. late up to 2016. But he didn't visit Alabama, uh, except for once. And he went to the bridge in mm-hmm. Selma in, in 2019. He didn't visit Mississippi. And so, and it's not even just that. Some of his um, surrogates ha- have kind of spoken ill of, quote unquote, red states. Right. And that red states shouldn't have a role in the process at all. What would you say, you know, to... to to people to well-meaning and typically white liberals <laughs> from from the north who write off Southern Democrats in generally.
1: So those well-meaning white liberals usually, for instance, they wanted Donald Trump impeached. The only reason he was impeached was because the Democrats have a house advantage and the majority of the House Democrats who are black are in the South right. or from the South. We forget about like when we think of the Democratic Party, we think of the president or the person who's contending for the presidency and then the local level. But we forget about the state representatives. We forget about the congressmen and the senators who also represent those red states. Um, The Democratic Party wouldn't have a base if it wasn't for black voters. And 20% of the black people in America live in the South. So. The people who support that party
0: are in disproportionately in red states, right? And the policies disproportionately affect people living in red right, states, right? And so that's
1: what I would say to those people. I would say if you want your party to be in power, if you want them to have an impact on policy, you have to engage the people in red states. Who and this is the other thing, right? Like, that's our only chance to get a have a voice. If you are a Democrat in Alabama, your vote, your presidential vote doesn't really count, right? It's never going to make a difference because that's how the Electoral College works. It's not a popular vote. So the only impact that you can have on the presidency is through a primary process. So we take more care to make sure that we are selecting the candidate for the party
0: that we want. You, through your writing, evaluated a number of the Democratic candidates' policies and kind of ranked them in terms of how black voters should evaluate them. But there was one interaction in particular that I think kind of stood out. If Elizabeth Warren could be considered responsible for ending the campaign of Mike Bloomberg, you may be the person who uh, bodied Pete Buttigieg's chances with black voters in a piece where you called Pete, a lying motherfucker. <laughs> I understand he called you afterwards, but I want to talk through, you know, what what did you mean by that and did speaking with him change your opinion on that at all?
1: So, so let's w- work through like how it happened. Yeah. So every day at the root, we have, you know, a, of course, our editors give us a list of things. Like I want you to work on this and I want you to work on this. But we are also able to bring things, like, you know, we should talk about this story. Not necessarily me but, you know, the root should do a story on this. So that Monday, you know, over the weekend, people had emailed and texted me a clip of Pete Buttigieg from when he was running for mayor of South Bend, sitting at a table with a room full of white men talking about education. And he made the comment that, you know, he basically said uh, a lot of the educational problems and the educational disparities are due to the fact that a lot of black kids don't literally don't see a role model that shows them that education is, is important. And Pete Buttigieg went to Harvard, he went to Oxford. So we know that he doesn't he doesn't really believe that, right? He knows better. Yes, because one of the demographics that are the most educated. So there is a lot of, larger percentage of black women who are college educated than any other demographic, white women, black men. Oh really, men. Right. I not know that. So, you know, since I think 2000, uh-huh. black women are the most educated demographic in America, right? Wow. So it can't be true, like who's raising those kids if they literally haven't seen a role model. And then again, because of the way our communities are structured, Every black kid knows the black teacher in town, the piano teacher, the, you know, they know someone. If there's a black doctor in town, every black child in that town knows them. If there's a black lawyer, every, so they see like even more than most people, they see people for whom education has worked. And so I didn't write that though. So (laughs) what I, what I said is, Hey, someone should do something on this, right? And so I forget what I was working on that day, but it was close to the end of the day, end of the day. And I said, hey, has anybody done anything with this? And it was like, nah, nobody's done anything with it. And so I just wrote that. And typically you might know this, right? So if you put something up on a news site's website at the end of the day, it's not really, it doesn't get as much traction as the stuff that goes up earlier, just because people read the read news while they're working and during the right. day. I woke up the next morning and it was it had blown up. I hadn't even, you know, I wasn't even checking, but it had blown up. So I just went about my, the regular day and I got a phone call that says, hey, Pete Buttigieg wants to talk to you. So our politics director, Jason Johnson, I think he was had done something with the campaign manager or something. And so he gave her my number. And she called me and he, she said, Pete Buttigieg would like to speak to you. We had a conversation on the phone. Again, I hadn't planned on writing about the conversation. Yeah. But, and the reason I hadn't was because I had just forgot It happened so fast that I had forgotten to ask him whether it was on the record or not. Right. But like a few minutes after the phone call, I get, he went to a town hall meeting and said, hey, I just called Michael Harriet, and here's, here's what we talked about. So I wrote about that, and that Did, blew up. Is what he said, was that reflective of what you actually talked about? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. He didn't yeah, lie or anything. Okay. And so then he asked for an on-camera interview. Um, we had an on-camera interview. And, of course, because all of that blew up, people who lived in South Bend started sending me stories about what happened in South Bend. And one of the stories was it was from 12 police officers. Who said, like, we had been working here for years. And during his entire tenure as mayor, no black police officers, literally none, had been promoted. Almost all of them had left. They don't have an outreach. And then, and when we specifically reached out to Pete Buttigieg, they sent me mounds of letters, lawsuits, EEOC complaints, where they were, they had sent, them to Pete Buttigieg's office, and they had been stamped, received by his office, and he had never in his entire tenure as mayor responded to it. So I talked to the current police chief. I talked to the past police chief. I talked to some of the people in the community. I talked to some of the police officers, and I wrote a story about that. Again, that blew up. And so I guess the narrative was that I kind of ended his <laughs> campaign because, it, you know, I proved that he really didn't know about or care about or address issues of the black people in South Bend. But you asked me if it changed my opinion of him. Really, I didn't have any opinion of him, right? Like before the initial clip that I saw, he was just a guy who was running for president. And I always am intentional about dispelling narratives that people just somehow seem to think for no reason at all that don't have any data or proof behind them, which is that education narrative.
0: Well, and that narrative, I mean, you you address this in your piece, it gets picked up by politicians a lot, right? right? whether it's, you know, Barack Obama talking about cousin Pookie and Joe Biden talking about corn pop and things like that. So like that narrative, whether it's Pete Buttigieg or whomever, obviously you address it very directly in Mm -hmm. this, but how do you kind of combat that? broader conversation in politics about the lack of role models in black communities.
1: So again, going back to what we talked about earlier with my training as an economist, I try to use facts and what people people often talk about the motherfucker part of the article and don't talk about the facts that the data that I explained in the article, which is again black women, are right. most educated, so who's raising those children, mm-hmm. right? The, the the education disparities, if you live in a black neighborhood in America, not just in the South, right? If you attend a black school, a school that is majority black, it is underfunded, on average, $1,333 per student versus kids who attend a majority white school. The best majority black schools are funded at lower levels than the poorest White schools, right? So you know you point. That's why the education disparities. It's exist. not about role models, right? It's, it's about not dollars. like it's not yeah. like you go to school and you learn social studies because you remember a role model, <laughs> right, right? right? It's not right. like you know how to use computers because of role models. It's because you are com- You go to a school that has fewer computers than most schools. Like like I, one of the greatest examples right here in Birmingham is so my son attended uh Hoover High School, right? Hoover High School isn't really funded much higher than Birmingham City Schools, but here's the difference, right? It's the it's how they are segregated in Birmingham for instance, right? Well, okay, let's start with Hoover. So my my kid went to Hoover. He played on the band, right? Mm-hmm. So when the band wanted to buy new uniforms. They get them new uniforms every year. It's not a part of the school budget. The parents have enough money to kick in for uniforms. Like the band budget, his senior year, I remember being amazed by this. They had $300,000 in the bank. They took charter buses to every band concert. And when the English teacher, for instance, wanted them to uh, read a book, the school didn't provide the book. The parents had to dip into their pockets and get that book. Now, those are advantages of being in a financially well-off school district. In Birmingham, if they wanted to read those books, school had to provide those books. In Birmingham, if they wanted the children to have a computer device, the school had to provide those computer devices. In Birmingham, when the band wants new uniforms, the school either has to provide those uniforms. Now, the schools in Birmingham didn't. What they would do is literally all the schools in Birmingham took leftover uniforms from those suburbs, the schools in the suburbs, until the city of Birmingham raised the money themselves, like outside of the school district, to buy these kids uniforms, right? Those are the advantages, that happen when you go to a s- segregated school district. And and so we don't talk about those things, but if you talk about the kids in Birmingham, right, you would say it's role models. It ain't role models, bro. It's, it's that they have fewer resources to supplement their education. One of the best examples is that every child at my kid's school took SAT prep courses every kid now if you want to do that in Birmingham City schools you have to just either your parents had enough money or you just went to the SAT based on what you learned at school and then we, we say, well I wonder why the the kids at Hoover score higher than the kids you know inside of the Birmingham city schools that's why that's right because yeah. they have it's not just money it's the resources. That, that money provides
0: to supplement their education. Well, and I, and I think about some of the rural communities in Alabama mm. where you'll have the county public school, mm-hmm. and then you have you know the so-called historically called segregation academies mm-hmm. where white families are taking dollars out of that county and putting it in these private schools, and the private schools aren't necessarily much better than the no. public schools. You just have two underfunded right. schools when you could have one well-funded school. Right. I've met students at the University of Alabama who came from, you know, county public school mm-hmm. and county academy and similar education levels. Mm-hmm. But if they had, I mean, and it's easy for me to say this as, as somebody who came from the suburbs. But you know, like if if the communities could somehow realize that it's in the best interest of all the children to combine the resources, then you know, one school that's, might and, flourish.
1: And that's the point that I always point out, right? So if you separate your kids from schools. Uh you know, you want your kids. It's that's right white supremacy, just to have that advantage, right? But I always point out that it hurts white people too. It doesn't give them the advantage that they think it does. It it makes their kids attend underfunded schools, right? It reduces the resources and it or either raises the tax dollars that they have to pay to fund those schools because it's being divided just simply because some people don't want to go to school with black people. All of that hurts white people, not just as much, but it hurts white people too. Their kids could have a better education if they didn't exist in these two separate different
0: worlds. Coming up after the break, Michael Harriet shares his thoughts on the history of white people and the history of black people. We've talked a little bit about perceptions of Southern black voters. You also wrote a piece a couple of years ago where you wrote that there's no place blacker than Birmingham, Alabama. Right. <laughs> and I think in the imagination, we were talking about those white Northern liberals. Mm. I think in the imagination of a lot of people, Birmingham is still Bull Connor's Birmingham. Right. What did you mean in that piece? What does Birmingham, as, as it is now, mean to you but also mean to America? Well— one of the things that I always struck me after moving here is that is
1: how much history that the average citizen in Birmingham knows, right? And it's because their parents and their grandparents were participants in it. it's It's not just some stuff that they learned out of a history book. You know, they walk past the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church. They walk down the streets that were bombed. You know, I remember walking through Dynamite Hill. And just thinking about how crazy it is that that happened. Those bombings happened so often that it just became the nickname of an entire section of the city. And those people remember that. So that is infused almost into the DNA of the city, the civil rights struggle. Not so much the racism as it is the fight against racism, the resistance to this. National policy that they created. I'm not just created, but they were at the front of that movement and sacrificed for black people. The 1960s, and especially in Birmingham, is our greatest generation, right? It's we lost people who had to fight for their children, just as people in the 40s had to go overseas and fight Nazis. Yeah. And so that's still infused into the DNA of this city.
0: Parts of Alabama are starting to toy with better telling this story. I think about Montgomery and Birmingham both better telling the story of the civil rights movement than they once did. But, you know, for a place where white Alabamians revere generals and Mm -hmm. confederates so much, been Studying the civil rights movement a lot in the last few years that that was as much a planned strategic battle as the civil war ever was. And they won and they won without ever firing a gun. Uh, And so, you know, it's like the the AG Gaston Hotel. Mm. That's as as sacred a place as Patton's war rooms during World War Two. And I know that it gets tricky. You don't want people who are on the wrong side of that to mm-hmm. be the ones who are who are profiting off of up the tourism and right. telling that story. But I do think that that's the level of pride that some people feel for Robert E. Lee, mm-hmm. you know, like, well, he lost, yeah. but Shuttlesworth didn't. Yeah. And, and so like that, you know, that, that level of reverence, I think that if people in Alabama could kind of I mean, and I grew up over the mountain, you know, I grew up in in the white suburbs, and we didn't learn that history as well as we should have, uh, in part because, you know, you talk about the people in Birmingham, their ancestors being the ones who were part of the greatest generation, our ancestors were not. (laughs) And so that uh, history doesn't get passed down as much, but like, you know, you go back and you study it, and it's just short of of Gandhi and, Mm. and Nelson Mandela, that type of strategic I think that's the thing. Like people just think of like, oh, what well, was the marches and and mm. Lyndon Johnson swooped in and mm. saved the day, but it you know, it was the strategy that went into all of that, I think, is what's right missed and, out. And, on. and
1: and the courage, right? it's not yeah, just and courage, yeah. I can't imagine, for instance, you take the freedom ride, the courage to get on those buses and, you know, have them bombed and see those water hoses and see the people who were Murdered during the civil rights movement, from Emmett Till to James Meredith, all those people, right? But this is what I often think about: in Birmingham, they said, "Hey, we're going to send all of our children out there again." After all of that, they, the Children's March is is an incredible thing that they said, like they sent their children out there knowing that the people in charge of this city
0: would kill them. And it's mind boggling that they did that. And it's, I mean, the courage that goes into it. And, you know, we were talking about democratic politics earlier and Mississippi, all this fretting over a brokered convention, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party Mm, going and, you know, hosting their own elections and then going and challenging Lyndon Johnson at his own convention in Atlantic City and Fannie Lou Hamer, the level that black Alabamians and black Mississippians and black southerners did and 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 children like you said I mean people as young as seven going out and um I mean transforming the country right and then to kind of sit back and say well it doesn't matter what red states do I think is uh where where (laughs) I get frustrated I mean and and I don't I wrestle with this all the time it's you know what is what is my role in trying to figure out ways to to better tell that story and you know not elevate my own voice, but elevate other people's voices. Do you think Alabama is getting better at telling this? Or is it still black Alabamians live in the civil rights movement and white Alabamians live in the civil war? I think those things are true, right? Because when we tell those stories,
1: we have to, you know, to tell them correctly, we have to have and dig into some personal connection with them. And, you know, many of those people who were on the other side of those water hoses who was, you know, who were throwing the the firebombs, they're still alive. Those are their grand or they still live in the memories of their children and their grandchildren. So I think there's a level of shame in it. And so if you know your grandmother, right. Or your grandfather, think about how many of their values that you still share. And so, I can only imagine that a lot of the people in Alabama who are white still share remnants of those same i mean you know just think about uh j t Wagner his his father was part of the triumvirate that ruled the city that sprayed the fire hoses and allowed the Klan to throw those fire bombs. he still an Alabama senator to this day. And it wasn't like he was a kid when that was happening. He's 80 years old and he was in his 30s right. <laughs> when it was about, happening. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. He was in his 30s when this was happening. Yeah, You could only imagine like those remnants of that segregation mindset. Still live in the hearts and minds of some of those people. I was just thinking last night, I remember last year I covered A city council person in Georgia, a white guy, and they were covering they were going to hire a city manager. One of the candidates was black and one of the city council person who was white said, the Bible teaches me that black people and white people shouldn't intermingle, which was a crazy thing to say. But what the crazy thing was when people told him he was wrong, he seemed to think, wait. Everybody doesn't believe this. Right. Right. So that had been affirmed by the people, I guess, by his church and by the people around him, that that is a Christian thing. I think people don't say that quiet part out loud as often, but they still lingers. They still go to those same churches that fought against integration and they still belong to the same community organizations that, you know, rallied to fight integration. So... That attitude still exists, so I don't know how we think that we have gone as far as we used to when the mindset and the people
0: are still alive. So do you have a sense of how to get to that next point? Or is is there a next point? What What motivates you? I really don't know
1: how we get to that next point because it's something I honestly can't really think about because... For that mindset to cease existing is totally up to white people, right? Like I can't, I think black people have done as much <laughs> as they can to convince white people that they are equal yeah. or that they should be treated better. Like I don't know what else we could do. So it's up to white people, right? They, and I think they have to be intentional about making that change. It's almost like you have to deny the religion of your parents And so you can't, you know, it just won't come about because, you know, you heard some things about another religion on TV or, you know, you visited another church. You have to be intentional about changing that mindset. So I think it is up to white people.
0: Yeah. I mean, demographically, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely is because Georgia is 52 percent white. Yeah. Mississippi is 60 yeah. some odd percent white. Alabama is 67 yeah, percent right. white. So, I mean, you have to get at least maybe not a, a majority, but a plurality of right. white people yeah. allied then, with, yeah, with right. black voters? Like,
1: we, if you go back to politics, every black person in the state legislature is a Democrat, and every white person in the state legislature is a Republican. Yeah. And, There's one or two, but
0: yeah. But yeah, pretty close. Nice. And
1: so. <laughs> In in the state, when you think about like how we're gonna you know address those questions politically, well, we know the white people are gonna vote one way and the black people are gonna vote another way. And until one side or the other side can see
0: a middle ground, I don't know how we come to that. I was I was thinking about that point the other day, right? Because there's been a lot of pieces written in the last few years about what the future of the Democratic Party looks like in the mm. South, and you know, typically they focus on Stacey Abrams, mm. Andrew Gillum, Mike Espy. You know, very charismatic and important politicians, mm-hmm. all three of whom lost their mm-hmm. races. There's a lot of conversations we could have about why they lost those races. But then you think about "quote unquote" Democrats, the new Democrats that won their races, mm-hmm. right? And so you got Bell Edwards, mm-hmm. you got Doug Jones, Bashir in mm-hmm. Kentucky, mm-hmm. and so the new Democrat. Looks a lot like the old Democrat and right. that it's middle-aged white men yes. that are winning statewide. And the coalitions that they're winning with are very different than, obviously, the Dixiecrats were winning. Because right. it's mostly black voters. Mm-hmm. As you said, most of the legislators of the Democratic Party in the South mm-hmm. are black. Mm-hmm. Is it because of what you were just talking about that it, you know white voters are going to have to make a choice that Democrats that are still winning statewide tend to be white and male?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, a lot of times black voters are intentional about sending white males to state and national legislatures because, you know, it's kind of like what we talked about with the civil rights movement. Like maybe they won't kill the kids, right? Maybe they they like they can't do that to the white people, right? So maybe we could have a voice through this white man or through this white woman that they would just immediately dismiss if it was a black person. You know, I don't I don't know if Doug Jones would be in the Senate right now if he was a black woman. Right? Yeah. Even if he ran against Roy Roy Moore. Moore. Yeah. In Alabama, there are a lot of rooms that a black woman just can't go into. Right? There are a lot of deals that a black woman just couldn't broker.
0: Yeah, and and there are a number of policies that were passed under Barack Obama that if they had been passed by a white man, mm-hmm. low-income white voters mm-hmm. would probably adore. Right. I mean, I think about the Affordable Care Act, for right. example, but because it's Obamacare, right. it's a very different situation. Let's talk a little bit more about your career. We've we've spent a lot on uh, big topics. You have a couple of books in the works. right? You signed a a two book deal Mm -hmm. last year. Tell me what you're working on. So
1: the two books, the first is kind of a memoir slash book about race called White Peopleology. And it's kind of just like what we just talked about. You know, the idea that to understand race in America, you have to understand white people. It's not about Knowing black history or understanding, you know, we didn't create the system, we don't perpetuate it. So, to understand it, you have to make an intentional effort about knowing white people. And uh, one of the things that I talk about is, uh, you know, how it mirrors my life. I was homeschooled until I was 12 years old. And when I started going to school, having been raised in this bubble, of in a segregated town where I really only interacted with black people, I had to intentionally learn my place in the world by getting to know white people. Because, you know, once you get out of a black, insulated town, whiteness determines how the world reacts to you and how you
0: will react to the world. Are you talking about when you were at Auburn? Is that
1: Well, it's just from high school, from high school to Auburn to to how I relate it to the world in general is kind of determinative by white people and, you know, this white power structure that runs America. And then what is the
0: second book that you.
1: So the, the second book is called Black AF History. OK. It is kind of a reframing of black history. From the perspective of you know black people writing history and the stuff that we don't talk about, exactly what we were talking about earlier, elevating those voices and elevating the stories of what we don't know and what we aren't taught. and specifically what the book does is it doesn't just talk about these obscure stories, right it relates them to why things are the way they are now. for instance, when you talk when we talk about You know, gun violence in America, take for instance. It rests in this reverence for the Second Amendment. Well, you know, they don't teach us in school that the Second Amendment, first of all, the Bill of Rights, how we understand the Bill of Rights as part of the Constitution. The Constitution was ratified and then they added the Bill of Rights, which is why they are amendments. And the Second Amendment was specifically included in the Bill of Rights, which, you know, James Madison didn't want to include it, to prevent— Slave revolts, you know, when the Constitution gave the federal government the power to raise an army and the Southern people were afraid that, well, what if they give these free black people guns and there's a slave revolt and they take away our guns? so the Second Amendment was included in the Constitution to prevent a slave revolt. And you can look at the Virginia debates ratifying the Constitution and the writings of Madison, and even Washington, and and discover this, but we aren't taught that, right? So that's why the Second Amendment kind of is revered in America, because it protects this right that you know as an Alabamian is considered sacrosanct.
0: Well, and you would know this a lot better than I would, but my understanding is that the few times where states and the country have ever infringed on those rights mm-hmm. has been when when black people have exercised them. You know, right. Ronald Reagan in California passed some anti-gun regulations mm-hmm. because the Black Panthers were right. arming themselves. Yeah, in the yeah Area. that was the first
1: kind of real gun law in America. The first time that, you know, the Supreme Court ever addressed the Second Amendment was in 1868, when a group of white supremacists slaughtered black people in New Orleans to keep them from voting, which is also, the source of the first big protest over a Confederate monument, this Battle of New Orleans, commemorates when white supremacy saved New Orleans. And the people who committed that atrocity took their case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided in their favor because they said people had the right to own guns, and the KKK Act prevented white mobs from having guns. Wow. Wow.
0: When are these books due? Uh, So
1: the first one will be in the spring of 2021 and the second
0: one in the spring of 2022. Okay. So you have one book that's effectively looking at White people mm-hmm. and their history. And one yeah. book that's effectively looking at black people and their history. Right. And we can we look forward to both of them. If you want more from Michael, you can find him on the route. You can find him his writing is all over the internet. It sounds like he has a piece that's out in the Washington Post now as well. And then you can find him on Twitter at at Michael Harriet. Right. Well thank you, Michael, for coming on. Thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have this week. We're trying something a little different with this week's episode. Because so much has changed in the weeks since Michael Harriet and I recorded our conversation, he has generously agreed to sit down for a special live episode of the Reckon Interview. So join us this Thursday on Reckon's Facebook page at 2 p.m. on April 30th for more from Michael. If you got questions, send them to me ahead of time or go ahead and jump in and leave them in the comments while we're talking. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammondry, and it was produced and edited by Steph Colburn's awesome team at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletter. And if you're feeling generous or just cooped up at home, why don't you leave us a five-star review that'll help us spread these great stories from the South. And until next week, be well.